0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios.
1: It's Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway, and you're listening to an encore edition of our Politics of Climate Change episode. Scientists have painted a bleak picture of a future if we fail to curb emissions, but we've already started to witness the fallout from a warming planet.
2: Fires across California are wreaking havoc and devastating communities.
1: The
0: desperate situation in the Bahamas. The death toll from Hurricane Dorian is rising. Tens of thousands of people in North Carolina are starting to tally the damage from Hurricane Florence. Early estimates show this storm caused as much as $22 billion with a B in destruction. Barry is packing winds
1: of up to 65 miles per hour. Torrential rains and flash flooding remain a major problem. The increase of greenhouse gases entering the atmosphere will cause sea levels to rise heat waves to become more extreme, and allergies to become more severe. Plants will go extinct, floods will destroy homes, and people will be displaced. The implications of a warming planet are severe, and climate change has long been an issue of importance to progressives and environmentalists. But recently, we've seen it morph into a potent political issue. People who are economically disadvantaged and people of color, many times, they're the ones left behind. I strongly believe this is a fight against powerful interests. They don't get to make our kids sick. They don't get to shorten lifespans because it increases their profitability.
3: We are the most powerful country on Earth. We should be leading the world to a global energy transition, and you have a president who thinks it's not real.
1: Bernie's not wrong. Donald Trump swept into office, promising to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement and curb climate regulations in favor of business. But before we get into the specific policies and the politics of these policies, let's take a look at the scale of the problem. To help us do that is Rachel Cletus. She's the policy director with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, a science-based advocacy organization.
4: Are uh, human-caused emissions from burning fossil fuels and cutting down tropical forests, uh, are uh, creating uh, carbon emissions, heat-trapping emissions, that are accumulating in the atmosphere. And as they accumulate in the atmosphere, they are causing the planet to warm. We've already seen about a degree of warming already, on uh, global average temperatures uh, going up since uh, the Industrial Revolution because of these heat-trapping emissions. And unfortunately, emissions are continuing to rise, and because of that, a lot of the impacts uh, related to warming temperatures are worsening. And those include things uh, ranging from worsening heat waves, droughts, uh, extreme weather events being intensified like uh, extreme storms, extreme precipitation, rising sea levels, worsening wildfire seasons. A range of impacts like this that are having profound effects uh, on people's lives already and that will continue to worsen if we fail to curtail these heat-trapping emissions.
1: We're no longer waiting to see the ramifications of what it's like to release greenhouse gases. The shock is here.
4: Climate change is already here and now. It's already affecting people's lives uh, through worsening flooding events and wildfires and droughts and heat waves. Uh, It is uh, being driven by rising heat-trapping emissions uh, from human activities. There is no doubt about that. Um, And what they lay out is a picture where we've already seen an increase uh, in, for example, extreme precipitation events all around the country. We've seen temperature increases all around the country. And its impact won't be distributed evenly. The thing that uh, concerns me uh, the most is that while climate change is affecting us all and will affect us all, uh, there are some people who are going to be disproportionately affected. And we're already seeing it when extreme weather events play out, like Hurricane Dorian most recently uh, that devastated the Bahamas. It is uh, the low-income folks, often communities of color, the people with the least resources who can't get out of the way. who don't have uh, the wherewithal to uh, rebuild their lives post uh, disasters, who end up suffering the most. So that's really what keeps me up at night. It's this, uh, this really harsh layer of climate change that's coming at us, uh, coming at many, many people.
1: Rachel Cletus is Policy Director with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Now that we have an idea of the size and scope of the problem of climate change, it feels like a good time to check in with what the administration is doing. When President Trump was campaigning, he promised to work on decreasing environmental regulations that he believed were stifling economic growth. Two and a half years in, I asked Kendra Pierre-Lewis, climate reporter for The New York Times, how he's done with this.
5: So one of the things that I do at The New York Times with two of my colleagues is we put together a rollback tracker that sort of looks at what rules has he rolled back. And um, we're about at 85. My coworker reported on a a recent one that might make it 86, a dishwasher regulation. So they're either in process or have been completed. They're in various stages. But yeah, so he has made good on his campaign promise. He has attempted or is in the process of rolling back many environmental regulations.
1: Do you know how this compares to previous administrations. We haven't really
5: tracked it with previous administrations, but what I can tell you is that it's not just the the number or the scale. I guess it's the breadth of regulations that he's rolling back. And in some cases like when you look at the car Fuel efficiency standards that he's rolled back. Um, He's rolling back not just the the mile per gallon standard that sort of people think intuitively. He's actually rolling back precedent. So one of the recent stories that popped recently was the fact that California will no longer be. He's trying to make it so that California can no longer set its own fuel economy standards. California basically has been setting fuel economy standards since before the federal government set standards. That's why they have this kind of wonky ability to set their own standard that is as good or more restrictive than the federal government one, because they had such a smog problem.
1: And the president has pointed to strong economic growth in his first two years as president as a sign that the deregulatory environment is working. Mm-hmm. Can we connect those two things? I don't think we can, partly because some
5: of the rollbacks are so new that we have yet not yet seen their effects. And some of the rollbacks are rollbacks of things that were not yet implemented. So some of them have to do with safety standards or pollution standards that electricity plants. We're going to have to put an infrastructure in place, and now they don't have to put that infrastructure in place. So we can't yet say that, or we can't see that. And at least in the case of the auto emission standards, the idea that it's because it's what the car companies want. It's actually not true in this case. Many of the car companies are pretty vocally on record as saying that the this emissions standard rollback and this challenge to California's ability to set emission standard is actually making their ability to manufacture cars more difficult. So why do it then? I don't know. I mean, I like any good person, I have my theories or I can speculate that I can't say definitively why do it. One of the things that somebody told me um, a while ago when I was looking into sort of the regulations rollback is that oftentimes people have these conversations saying that they don't like regulations and they want fewer regulations. Mm-hmm. But then when you start going through the regulations and asking people well, do you, do you not want, like, the Clean Water Act? They're like, no, no, I like clean water. But, like, who bears a negative cost of something? Is it society at large or is, it the, or is it the person producing the thing?
1: So the good news is we have a cleaner environment than we did in the 60s. The bad news is because we have a cleaner environment, a lot of folks don't believe that if we roll back these regulations, it could get bad again. Right. That's one of the
5: problems. And then the other problems is we have climate change. And a lot of the rollback regulations are targeting things that um, impact climate change. So there are a lot of methane regulations and methane leak regulations. So methane is a greenhouse gas that's um, many times more potent than carbon dioxide. It's shorter lived, so it doesn't hang out in the atmosphere as long, but it is much stronger. It has a much stronger heat effect. And so we also know we're running out of time. We know that um, we have kind of 10 years, 11 years to really sort of put in place the things that we need to avoid the worst effects of climate change. And that's an added burden in the sense that carbon emissions are invisible. We can't see them. We're battling sort of cleaner air and those regulations, but we're also battling this sort of invisible force of climate change.
1: The other thing that the president talked a lot about on the campaign trail, he continues to talk a lot about now, are his friends in the coal industry that he's going to be the best friend
5: to
6: mm-hmm.
1: coal miners, bring back coal. What's that been like? What What is the impact on the coal industry? Yeah, been? coal
5: is still declining and coal is declining because we have natural gas. It's cleaner and it's cheaper. Um, and so the little bit of coal that we're still, at least in the United States, most of the coal that we're still able to sort of produce and sell is metallurgical coal, which is going is not used to generate electricity, basically. You're using it to like manufacture metal, hence the name. And so the coal industry is still declining. Those
1: jobs are not coming back. You know, we, we do see this push and pull um, every time you have a new administration come in and they say, you know, uh, w- we're running to undo the stuff that the previous administration did, right? We think they went too far, didn't go far enough. And I'm I'm wondering if you think that had there been another Republican president not named Donald Trump, we would be seeing some of these similar deregulation? Or do you think that this is unique to the, the president?
5: When they were trying to undo these regulations sort of like in the beginning, they often found legal challenges because they weren't using proper procedure. And so it's been like sending it out for public comment, all of these things. And so I think for the administration, it's been a really big learning curve about what they can and cannot do. And some of the reasons why some of these are still held up in legal challenges is because some of the regulations, especially around like greenhouse gas emissions that the Obama administration put in place, were actually in response to legal challenges to not having regulations in place. And they were court ordered and told that they had to do these regulations. So I think under a different administration, even another Republican administration, we probably wouldn't see this many because there'd be a more foundational understanding, especially in the beginning, about sort of where the where the lines are
1: right. and
5: what they're actually able to accomplish.
1: And are the people that have been appointed into important positions within the EPA, do any do, do they have background in regulation and they understanding? They tend to have this? really
5: strong um, ties to the fossil fuel industry.
1: There's also been a lot of chatter that what the president is, is interested in doing is not just lifting regulations off to help business, but as a way to um, basically poke the eye of President Obama. If Obama did it, then I want to undo it.
5: I don't have sourcing within the administration, so I can't speak to the veracity of those claims. I've read them too. I will say that if you look at the complete list of rules, and our list is actually a floor, not a ceiling. Um, We had kind of very strict rules around like what we considered a regulatory rollback. But I think that when you have industry itself in some cases saying that they don't want certain rules undone, it does <laughs> it does make it seem like it's not coming from necessarily
1: coming from them. Kendra Pierre Lewis, thank you so much for coming in and speaking with me. Thank you so much for having me. Since he took office, President Donald Trump has made it a priority of this administration to roll back regulations that were established to safeguard the environment and curb greenhouse gas emissions. Doing so, Trump has argued, will unleash economic growth and bring back struggling industries like coal mining and manufacturing.
3: This is a great day for American workers and families, and today we're unleashing American energy and clearing the way for thousands and thousands of high-paying American energy jobs.
1: To put the Trump administration's legacy on climate change in perspective, I wanted to talk to someone who understands the role that government plays in setting environmental standards for the country. Christine Todd Whitman is the former governor of New Jersey and was the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency under President George W. Bush. She has been an outspoken critic of the Trump administration's handling of environmental issues, saying on CNN that the administration is hamstringing scientists and their ability to do their work. During her tenure at the EPA, she also clashed with members of the Bush administration for advocating tougher environmental regulations. I started out asking her about how the EPA can balance industry, science, the environment, and government. Well, the one thing I'll say about
0: the Bush administration, while people may have said it had too much of an industry tilt, they didn't hate scientists. They didn't have a war on scientists. We listened to the scientists. We weren't told to put industry representatives on the science advisory board. There wasn't pressure to do that. Uh, They made policy decisions, and some of them with which I disagreed, but as an administrator, first of all, the Environmental Protection Agency, it doesn't matter what you do, you get sued. I mean, that's just a basic any regulation, you get sued because there are people on both sides who have to either change behavior or spend money on a problem they don't think is theirs or they don't think is real. And regulations are easy to hate for that reason when it comes out into the public because it it makes people, people have to jump through hoops they didn't do before. Then they may say, look, the air looks clean enough. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to spend more money to reduce what I am putting into the atmosphere, not my problem, it's somebody else's bigger problem. So I understand that, and it means that any time you promulgate a regulation, almost inevitably you're going to have a suit from one side or the other. My key was always if I was being sued
1: from both sides, then I was in the right place. How much can one administration do, either by putting on more regulations or taking them off, for it to actually hold. Well, it, it very much depends on the regulation and
0: how serious the pushback is against it and which determines the length of the legal process. and what it, and the kind of job that you did in the background research, then the scientific research to establish the parameters of the particular regulation. You can do a lot. But one of the things that you see happen when you have an administration that that, said, that starts to undo and says they're going to undo all these regulations is you put uncertainty into the market. And companies don't make the investment in technological improvements if they don't think they might have to. And if it's in the courts, you know, there's no cutoff point until the decision is made. So. That has an impact in and of itself. Whether the regulation goes through or not at the end is a different thing, but just the uncertainty that comes into the market because they see that regulations are being pulled back is, they pretty much know, it's interesting, uh, when you get into the courts, they have kind of an idea of how good their suit is and how liable they are to, to win it. And some of it's just stalling so they can keep doing what they've been doing for a while longer. But when you have an administration that keeps changing things all the time, that's when you get the real uncertainty, and they aren't making the decisions that that the long-term decisions they need to make. And it's going to be much harder, frankly, on many industries if, in the end. Some of this stuff is thrown out in court, and the original um, the original regulation sticks because they're going to be behind.
1: And so, if a Democrat is elected in 2020 and comes in and says, "Okay, now we're going to undo all of the stuff that the Trump administration did," how hard is that to unravel?
0: Well, I hope if they when they come in that they will be more systematic, and they'll start with science and start with getting the scientists and the science advisory boards up to snuff and start doing the basic research, take on the big ones. I mean, the first thing they'll probably do that all of the candidates have said they will do is put us back into the Paris Accords and start to deal with the issue of climate change. That can move things forward pretty fast because things are happening to reduce our emissions, not thanks to this administration, but thanks to what's going on around the state and in the various cities and throughout the country. So they'll have, I believe, more of a responsive public to what it is they want to do. And then they're going to have to go, they're going to have to go slowly. They're going to have to back up their decisions to undo anything that's actually gone final and been approved by the courts with scientific evaluation that says, no, they were wrong. And here's why they were wrong. And here's what the real science is telling us and why we should do it. So it's going to take a while.
1: So where does this leave the Republican Party going forward? We know that, especially for younger generations, they see the issue of climate change as the most important issue of their lifetime. And the Republican Party is seen as being on the wrong side of this issue.
0: Well, it leaves the party struggling for relevance. Um, you know, This is the issue. This will be the first election in my memory where an, an environmental issue was actually discussed much less becomes a major subject of discussion in a presidential campaign. It just hasn't happened before. And this issue is is not going away. The younger generation and more and more their elders are recognizing what's happening and recognizing the toll it takes on us, on, on everyone. I mean, we see it here. We see it with the increased severity and frequency of storms. The fact that these hurricanes gather much more water because of the warming water of the of the oceans and they linger longer they slower Uh, look at what's happening happening in houston um now it's one of those things where it's people are actually seeing it if you look at any poll of the american people overall you see that they absolutely believe that the climate is changing that humans have a role to play and we should be doing something about it
1: as a republican What is your advice to the Republican Party on how to address this? What should they be, at the very least, doing? At the very least, they have to acknowledge this is an issue, that there's
0: a problem here. You don't start talking and you can't reach conclusions if you can't get everybody to at least look at one another and say, "Okay, we get it. There's an issue here. Now let's sit down and see what we can do about it. They've got to engage with with Democrats, and Democrats have to engage with the Republicans. They have to put aside all this partisanship that we see driving everything today. And the Republicans in particular have to say, okay, I get it. This is important. This is an issue. Humans have a role to play here, and we're willing to sit down and talk about what are the best ways to address it while still keeping our economy growing, as we have done in the past over and over again.
1: Governor Whitman, thank you so much for taking all this time to speak with me. Really appreciate it.
0: Well, my pleasure. And again, thank you for doing this.
1: At the top of the show, we heard how the impacts of climate change are not spread equally. Those who are already poor and vulnerable find their situations exacerbated by warming temperatures. So I sat down with Zara Hirji, a science reporter for BuzzFeed News. She walked me through what inequality looks like for those who are already disadvantaged. In June
6: 2017, a report came out in Science. What they found was, of course, everyone, every county, every piece of the U.S. will be feeling impacts. But the brunt of those impacts or the brunt of the damage associated with those impacts are gonna be felt on poor communities. I'll give you one statistic. Mm. The study estimated the poorest third of US counties could possibly see damages between two to 20% of their income in the second half of the century. Now, why is this happening? What does this mean? Right. How does that work? Well, part of it is because so many of the poor counties are actually in the southern half of the United States. That's where we're going to see more warming. It's already warmer down there. So any additional warming on top of that, it's kind of pushing to the limits, you know, of what we humans can endure. And that's when you start getting into health impacts. So the real, there's a lot of different factors that go into this analysis, but the main one is the impact on health and mortality. And just as it gets hotter and people have to endure that, they're going to have problems. But right now, we're already seeing how poor communities face the brunt of the damage from actual weather climate impacts. So following Hurricane Harvey, which had this historic slam into Texas and the Houston area, I mean, it dropped record levels of rain and just stalled out. You know, and there was no part of the Houston area that wasn't impacted by flooding some of the affluent areas some of the poorer areas but as we got farther and farther away from that storm it was the poor communities that had the harder time that took longer to recover now if you don't have a lot of money saved up and your home flooded you're going to need to use that limited amount of savings for that and then you don't have it for something else you know there are a lot of different ways where if you just don't have access or the same access to resources then you are going to take a
1: longer time for recovery. And we're seeing that all across the country right now. With Hurricane Katrina, it was really brought to light, the disparity between who was impacted and how they were impacted and and who wasn't. Shouldn't cities and states then have taken a lesson from that on how to lessen the disparate impacts? I think there's just a general higher
6: level of vigilance In ensuring that some of the communities that may not have, say, access to cars, but if they need to evacuate, ensuring that there are buses or ways that they can get out or giving them enough time to figure out how to do that. So I went down to North Carolina last year to cover Hurricane Florence, which seemed to have a very similar composition to Harvey. It was this big storm. It was stalling and everyone knew that the main threat was going to be precipitation and rain. And the governor there, Governor Cooper, literally like over a week out was taking it very seriously. They provided a ton of buses and people were showing up in the Raleigh area, which is very far from the coast, um, days before the event. But that does require a level of commitment from state officials, from local officials, from the federal government, and whether or not that's happening all across the country and all of the areas where, you know, there's a risk, it's
1: hard to be seen. Over these next 20, 30, 50 years, we are going to see more migration based on climate. That Usually you see humans moving, violence is a big reason to... To try to leave your home country, but that that climate is a big push for that. And are countries equipped to handle what could be a mass migration in these next years?
6: No, I think that's pretty clear just by seeing the tensions we're mm-hmm. seeing in the U.S. with our southern border, also that we're seeing, you know, with refugees elsewhere and um, the intolerance or the just lack of access to getting you know, getting people a safe place to be if they need to flee and thinking that more people are fleeing, how are we going to be able to handle this, this demand in terms of the fights that often are recurring, especially at the global climate talks. It's how much money can some of the richer communities, richer nations provide to uh, third world nations. And that's just a hot button topic we've provided some, we haven't provided, you know, some of the richer developed nations have pledged some money. They have not necessarily given all that they have pledged. One of those is the U.S. Um, And of course, some of the developing nations are saying, well, that's still not enough. We have analyses. We know how high it's going to be. How do we reconcile these two different numbers? And so this is just a push and pull that happens at all of these negotiations and will only continue to be more contentious as we go forward. We'll say, you know, kind of zooming back into the U.S. Uh, with some of the Democratic candidates that are running for president. Uh, Julian Castro, the former housing secretary under Obama, in his climate plan, he's actually talked about um, wanting to create a climate refugee status. And I think at the climate town, CNN climate town hall a couple weeks ago, at least one other candidate was asked about it and said that they agreed that that is something they'd be interested in. So we're starting to see that actually seep into the
1: conversation, the high level presidential conversation in the U.S. So how did climate change and social justice become so closely linked over these last few years?
6: I will say when it comes to Greta Thunberg's uh, Friday for Future strike movement, also embedded with the Sunrise movement, many of these just different youth organizations that are gaining traction, they are trying to inject into the conversation equality in these okay. meshes of social justice and environmental justice. And I think it's partly because of them, for example, that they have helped push for the Green New Deal in uh, you know, this resolution in Congress that you're seeing seep into these presidential candidates' climate plans. So I would just say they are a space to watch Mm -hmm. because they are trying to push this issue into the conversation.
1: In a way that the other big name environmental groups didn't take up. They didn't take up the inequality piece in the way you're saying that the Sunrise Movement or younger activists are doing.
6: You know, I think it would be unfair to say that they have not. And I am like preparing for all of the hate mail I'm about to get. <laughs> but in terms of making it front and center, you know, always putting it at the forefront, saying that if we're going to talk about this, you have to also think about environmental justice. You have to think about social justice. And that is something that has changed in the conversation.
1: So Zara Herjee, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me about all of this. Thank you for having me. This has been great. We've been hearing from a lot of those young people that Zara mentioned. Here are a few of them.
2: Hi, my name is Shiria Bastida. I am 17 years old. I am a climate justice activist. I am currently a high school senior at Beacon High School. My town in Mexico, San Pedro Tultepec, uh, was in 2014, it was hit by a drought and you could feel that it wasn't raining at all and see it on prices of food that it was just getting too expensive because it was in shortage. My name is Azalea Danes, I'm 16 years old, I'm a senior at the Bronx High School of Science and I'm a core organizer for the New York City Climate Strike Coalition. When I was 10 years old, I lived in the evacuation zone of Hurricane Sandy, but due to like personal family circumstances, we weren't able to evacuate because my parents couldn't stop working. And so I witnessed firsthand the impacts of extreme flooding and extreme weather events, even in a place as um, privileged and um, well-resourced as New York City. Um, and it wasn't until several years later that I realized that the Effects of Hurricane Sandy were only worsened by the climate crisis. And I was shocked to hear that I didn't know that and that wasn't widely publicized information.
1: We go now to Pennsylvania, a state where the politics of climate change is front and center. That's because the economy in the state, particularly in western Pennsylvania, revolves around things like fracking, drilling, steel and plastics manufacturing. I talked with Allegheny County Executive Rich Fitzgerald about how much the economic livelihood of the area relies on these industries.
3: The biggest construction project in America is, is happening right outside of Allegheny County in Beaver County, the Shell Petrochemical Plant, um, the Cracker Plant, as we as we know it here in Western Pennsylvania. Thousands and thousands of jobs. Um, I think there's over six thousand jobs in building it. But but even more importantly. There's a, it's a $7 billion project where you're bringing $7 billion of wealth uh, into western Pennsylvania. And it's not just the, the folks who are building the plant, uh, but it's also the engineers working on the plant, the geologists who are, who are working on um, the, the the legal people, the the financial people, it's created a, a tremendous ecosystem. When this plant opens in a couple of years, we're going to see uh, a resurgence of manufacturing around plastics, uh, the likes of which we have not seen here in Western Pennsylvania. So it is an absolutely huge economic benefit to what's happening here uh, in Western Pennsylvania.
1: As you know, there's also a lot of concern from people in your community around the country about the environmental impact of this sort of energy extraction. And I'm wondering if you can tell us how you balance those things out.
3: The, the, yeah. you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that's a big part of, of how we have to do this and have to do it in a sustainable in uh, a responsible way. When I say we, I mean the entire community. You know, while while Shell or any company that's here uh, doing the extractive industries Um, we've got to make sure that our regulatory agencies, whether it's at the federal level with the EPA, at the state level with our Department of Environmental Protection, the DEP, or even the local uh municipal uh, enforcement make sure that this is done right and if and if folks are doing things wrong they need to be punished they need to be uh in uh, the the laws need to be enforced so i think we can balance it. it 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 really has to be balanced because you know we're not going to get away from energy and from plastics anytime soon so we need a transition to move towards that but we need to do it in a responsible way
1: I'm wondering if you felt that balance shift in terms of concerns about the environment and health versus the economic impact. I read the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette did a story a little while back about cancer clusters of children in and around some of these fracking uh, sites that we've seen in polling in the state, the issue of concern for the environment versus economic Growth has been growing. In other words, more people concerned about the environmental health impacts than about the economic benefits. Are you seeing that as well from your constituents?
3: Well, absolutely. I think I, I think that the stories that you've seen uh, regarding things that are happening in in and around Washington County, particularly in in Can- the, the town of Cannonsburg, um, and and the study that has been undertaken to determine why and and, and if there are any there any links to some of the things that are happening there so yes i i don't think we can we can turn a blind eye to what what could possibly be some environmental concerns uh but we also can't rush the judgment without the science and the facts science matters and i think that's a really important aspect of of what we're doing
1: if you can i'd love for you to weigh in on what you're hearing from the 2020 presidential candidates we know that the Green New Deal, for example, has been sort of a centerpiece for many of these candidates. Tell me what you think your constituents, how they will react to something like that, whether that will be a benefit to the Democratic candidate in getting votes from Western Pennsylvania.
3: Well, I think if, if you're talking about the, the Green New Deal as it's lined out, uh, it would really hurt uh, the Democratic candidate's chance of winning Western Pennsylvania, And I don't know how you can win the White House back without doing well in western Pennsylvania. We saw that uh, in 2016 uh, in which, uh, while in the urban core, uh, Hillary Clinton did very well. Um, We won by more than we had ever won before in and around the city of Pittsburgh. But once you went out into the rural areas, we had lost in ways that we had never lost before, 30-, 40-, 50-point losses uh, in some of these counties. So... If if we're going to have extreme positions around shutting down the fossil fuel industry, around the Green New Deal, I think it will be very difficult for the Democrats to win the White House.
1: There seems to be something of a generation gap, and I want to see how you, uh, if you've seen this as well, that yes, there are many Democrats who say, bread and butter issues, this is what Democrats need to focus on, a ban on fracking would really impact Western Pennsylvania in its pocketbook very detrimentally. But then there are the younger voters who say, this is the issue of our time. If we don't solve this now, we're never going to, we're not going to inherit a world that we want to live in. And you're not going to get my vote unless you are, as a Democrat, this is what they're saying to Democrats, you're not going to get our vote unless you have big, bold changes. I'd love for you to, to weigh in on how you see well, that.
3: Well, and, and you're right. There is there are some generational pulls from both sides that want to see things happen, and Pittsburgh certainly is living that. We're we're, we're becoming a much much younger uh, city with with people that are you know tech savvy and uh, the Google uh, folks and Facebook and all those big companies that are that are moving here, um, in, in growing operations here. So there is there is a a, a tension, if you will, uh, that does occur. But I also think there, there is a pragmatism. I, I think the younger generation also doesn't like to see what's happening in the White House right now, doesn't want to see uh, some of the things that, that are happening at the EPA, uh, happening around guns, happening around, you know, other issues along those lines. So uh, I, I do think at the end of the day that, that we realize, um, that, you know, with the old line, don't let the, the perfect be the enemy of the good. We want to move forward in a, in a, in a good way. But we also realize, I think most people realize if we go too far to an extreme, uh, we'll end up with nothing.
1: Rich Fitzgerald, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today.
3: Amy, good to be with you, and I, I got a feeling we're gonna we're gonna see you and hear from you a lot over the next uh, year, year and a half.
2: I first became aware of climate change, probably when I was in fifth or sixth grade. That's Leandra Mira. She's 18 years old and
1: she's from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.
2: And I remember learning about how bad greenhouse gases were and the effect that they were having on our atmosphere. And then every year since then, I've been seeing headlines of it being the hottest year on record. And it's not just the rising temperatures that are alarming to her. The climate crisis looks like the wildfires in California and Hurricane Dorian and the droughts that we're seeing with farmers and all of those different catastrophic weather patterns that we're seeing. But the climate crisis for me also looks like a future that's a lower quality of life for most people and a future with less availability of food and clean water and just things like that that we have every day that we might not have 15 or 20
1: years from now. For the last 17 Fridays, Leandra has been leading a silent sit-in outside the city-county building in downtown Pittsburgh. She's part of a new youth-led movement of climate activists demanding global action to combat climate change. For Leandra, that action starts at home. The best way to do something is going into
2: your community and seeing the environmental issues there. Because... More than likely, they're linked to the climate crisis. So for me in Pittsburgh, the biggest issues are air pollution, which adds CO2 to the atmosphere and leads to warming of the earth. So I decided that instead of just like taking in these depressing headlines and articles all the time and never knowing the right way to solve it, I would take – three different issues in my community, or four, or two, or however
1: many you want, and do work in your community to solve those. The air pollution that Leandra is referring to comes from things that are big business in Pennsylvania. Fracking, drilling, steel, and plastics manufacturing.
3: When completed, this facility will transform abundant natural gas, and we have a lot of it, fracked from Pennsylvania wells, which they never would have allowed you to take if I weren't president.
1: So, what does Leandra say to the people who ask about the economic benefit? That question
2: immediately makes me think always of this scene from Parks and Recreation, where Leslie Nope is in a debate with Bobby Newport, and pretty much he's saying that if the town doesn't vote for him, he'll his father's going to shut down the candy making plant that they have.
3: Recently, my dad told me that if Leslie Nope wins the election, they'll probably have to move Sweetums to Mexico. That would be terrible, of course. Thousands of people in this town would lose their jobs, and we all wouldn't have candy.
2: Then Leslie's response is, I won't let someone hold this town hostage.
4: I'm angry that Bobby Newport would hold this town hostage and threaten to leave if you don't give him what he wants. It's despicable. Corporations are not allowed to dictate what a city needs. That power belongs to the people.
2: That's what I think of when I think we need to ban fracking. We need to shut down these plants that are leading to cancer in communities and leading to higher asthma in communities and all of these different things. And the question is always, well, what about the jobs? But at what point do we say that lives, human lives are more important than jobs. And also concerning the ethane cracker plant, there's only 600 jobs or permanent jobs from that plant. And 300 of those jobs Shell is bringing from other parts of the country. So in reality, there's only 300 jobs being given to people in Western PA for that plant. And that's not really that many For a plant that's so large and going to do so much damage
1: to Pittsburgh. It's the human lives that Leandra thinks are left out too often in the framing of this debate.
2: People think of the climate crisis as only a scientific issue, but it's also a human rights issue. And we've not completely solved human rights issues, but we have made huge, huge progress I think that we need to treat the climate crisis the same way, where it's human lives that we're speaking about and it's our futures that we're speaking about. So for me, it's taking action, striking, electing people who will do something about
1: this, then hoping for the best. We know that climate change has squarely entered the political debate. According to a Pew poll, a majority of U.S. adults say protecting the environment should be a top priority for the president and Congress. But for climate activists like Leandra, dealing with it will take more than platitudes. The one thing that I've learned as
2: a climate activist is that while words of support are amazing, the only thing that really matters at this point is action. So if I'm speaking with an elected official or a business or anything, I love hearing them say that they care about the environment, but... I don't put a lot of weight on their words until I see them actually do something that is going to positively impact the climate crisis.
1: Leandra Mira is a youth climate activist in Pittsburgh. All week, we've been hearing from you about how your kids feel about climate change.
4: This
0: is Lisa Zimmerts. I am calling from El Cerrito, California. Five years ago, when my oldest was 15, I asked them on a scale of one to 10, how concerned were they about climate change? They faux fo- laughed and said, <laughs> 12.
5: Kaya
2: Morris, Bennington, Vermont. Two days ago, my eight-year-old son cried himself asleep
0: on thoughts of our planet's destruction. He pledged again to become a scientist and to create solutions. My child feels it in his bones without understanding the fullness of what we are facing. Some might say that he is too young, but he sees, he knows. He weeps. I have to
1: explain the causes and show him ways to take action every day. So we will join the climate strike on the 20th. To end today, I want to talk about mentors and role models. I've been fortunate to have both in my life. the People who help guide you and shape you, often without you even understanding or appreciating their impact on your life. One of the big downsides to getting older is having to say goodbye to those you can't imagine the world without. In 2016, it was Gwen Ifill, the pioneering PBS news anchor, who I've looked up to and was lucky enough to call a friend. This last week, it was Koki Roberts of ABC News and NPR. I worked with Koki at ABC for a number of years, but I followed in her large footsteps for many years before. She proves that representation matters. Before Koki, there weren't all that many women doing what I do now going on TV or radio to talk politics. That was a man's space. But thanks to Koki, I could finally see a place for myself there. Both Koki and Gwen were incredibly generous with their time and their commitment to lifting up women in the news industry. But they didn't suffer fools and they were tough graders. It meant that getting a compliment from them was sincere and hard won. At one of the hardest times in my career, Koki, maybe knowing this, maybe not, stood up for me and my work. I'll never forget that. Thank you, Cokie Roberts, for all the good you did and for all the good you've left behind. Our team is Vince Fairchild, Debbie Daughtry, Claire McKeon, Polly Arungu, Patricia Jacob, and Amber Hall. Our executive producer is Deirdre Depke. You can always find us on Facebook and leave us a comment there. You can call us at any time at eight seven seven eight 8 mytake or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway
0: i mm-hmm.